Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce this week's guests, yes, that's guests plural, just a quick reminder that the next listener Zoom hangout is coming out this Sunday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is for subscribers to the Substack at the founding member level, and it's a great thing. We meet every month on a Sunday evening for about an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, talk about recent episodes of the podcast, and I am there. I will facilitate the discussion, and it's a really good thing. So if you want to join us and you're not yet a founding member, you can go to the Substack at megandaum.substack.com and join us. So again, that's Sunday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Okay, today's guests are three people. This is historic because I've never interviewed three people uh, at once on this podcast. They are the hosts of a brand new podcast called Not Even Mad. They are Virginia Heffernan, Jamie Kerchick, and Mike Pesca. Mike has been a guest on the show before. He is the host of The Gist, very famous, long-running daily, that is five days a week, political podcast. And he's decided to do a second podcast uh, because I guess that's what one does now. So they are here to talk about it. It premiered last Wednesday, October 26th. And so they're going to tell us uh, what they talk about. This is a little bit different because they do a lot of the talking. I do attempt to interview them, but it's a little bit of a new thing to interview three people. There might be moments where you're wondering why I didn't push back a little bit more to some of the things that the people say. And I kind of just figured I should let them push back it at one another. So that's kind of the way the way things are going. I do chime in quite a bit, but that's kind of how things are on this one. So anyway, here is my conversation. Virginia Heffernan, Jamie Kerchick, and Mike Pesca. Virginia Heffernan, Jamie Kerchick, and Mike Pesca. Welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mike, so you could tell me and Jamie apart. Yes. I've never had this many guests, so this is a historic event. Do you mean on the podcast or just as a host, socially? And I have a very small, very small home, so I haven't even had this many people in my house. (laughs) This is the Not Even Mad podcast. Why don't we just start by you explaining the title? Because... I bet you get mad sometimes. Mike, take it away. Virginia, I think actually you were the one who either came up with it or most advocated for it. I think it's a good one, (laughs) right? Because we, I mean, it sets you up to try to listen for traces of rage in us, you know, (laughs) like it, right? Like you're, you hear mad and then you're like, try not to think of an elephant. You try to, anyway, the point is we disagree with each other politically but we don't, you know, but we like each other. And when it so far, when the curtain drops, <laughs> we did, did, but we've done like chemistry tests galore. And so far, um, oh. there's been no blood. Yeah. It, it also holds us to account, right? <laughs> well, we did say we're not even mad. So I guess that's off the table. But those shows, you, you know, it's not so it's the, the argument shows. It's not like Crossfire. It's, you know, that's not your model. Well, yeah, that's Jamie's got a good, good response to this. He he holds us to a super high standard of civility and kind of um, (laughs) eloquence. (laughs) 
Well, I'm yeah, I'm an old soul, and I when I get wistful about the state of our discourse and how it used to be, I go online and I watch old videos of William F. Buckley Jr.'s firing line, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where he would have on people who disagreed with him vehemently, uh, from various Black Panthers to Noam Chomsky, Allen Ginsberg, uh, you name it, and he he did that show for thirty five years, I believe. And never was a was a voice raised or uh, an insult shouted, and um, you can learn so much uh, watching those debates even today. And there's been nothing like it on television or radio or, dare I say, even in the world of podcasting since then. And uh, I think that's what I hope we can aspire to. I also think there's something about three people. Uh, I've studied, uh, you know, casually studied shows with two. And sometimes something about two and about couples, there is a balance. And if one side sees the other out of balance, it leads to some animosity. But three people is more of the stool, is more of the triangle. And it doesn't usually become two against one. So Crossfire, there were iterations of that where one of the hosts really hated the other one. But the good Mike and the Mad Dog, which is a uh, famous <laughs> uh, sports radio show. Mike hated the Mad Dog for a long time. But when it's three people, there's power dynamics, but also sometimes there are shifting alliances. I think of uh, roommate combinations I had over the years. Mm. So there is something good about that. Yeah. And there is a way that other like I feel like one of us jumps into referee a little bit if things get heated. It's uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think we got some nice uh, threes company. I'm Jack. Oh, but the two that's girls. That's a good model. <laughs> I, I can't remember the names of the other ones, but you're definitely Suzanne Summers, Mike. Christi- well, that's <laughs> that means one of you is going to get replaced every season with a different. Oh, right. Talent. Well, that was that was uh, that was Suzanne's fault for holding yeah. out for more money, and then her cousin. But that, yes, I am Christmas Snow. That was the name of Suzanne's co- Summers character, Chrissy Snow. Oh my god, so good. <laughs> really? Her name yeah. was Christmas. 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 No, that was one okay, of the jokes. See, yeah. That's the kind of thing Mike remembers and he brings to the table. Like just that, a complete yes. encyclopedic <laughs> understanding of three. I think I'm the only I'm the only member of this show who's too young to remember Three's Company. Oh, but you're both too happened. young, too young and too old. Jamie is a young fogey in every way. <laughs> I the th- good news is, Jamie, you get to be Joyce DeWitt, which is the one everybody was secretly in love with. True. I'll, I'll take that as yeah. a compliment. So, that's you. right. You're Janet. You're <laughs> Janet. Um, sorry, Virginia. Go ahead. This is hard. I've never inter- yeah. I've never interviewed three people before. So this is well. Okay. So whatever you were saying before I interrupted you, I I don't even know what I was saying except that, and this is kind of relevant to our dynamic too. If I think Jamie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but even if you were my age, even if you had been a child in the 70s and 80s, instead of born in the 80s, you would not have watched Three's Company. I just don't think you would have given it a look. I think that's oh, when you yeah. would have been watching Firing Line. Right. I was, I was watching <laughs> Are You Being Served? Oh, uh, wow. What, sorry? What's that? Uh, it oh, a, my. <laughs> it was a British uh, sitcom about a department store. I didn't understand oh. any of the jokes, but I just enjoy I was kind of a... A, a, a premature Anglophile. And so that's. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Um, okay. All right. So how, so first of all, Mike, I, it, when I saw that this podcast uh, was, was happening, the thing I thought was uh, two podcasts are the new one podcast because I too mm. now have two podcasts. <laughs> Apparently uh-huh. this is what one does now, but you actually do your other podcast every day. 
of the week. So what, whose idea was this? Well, I had so much bandwidth left. Uh, it was either do another podcast or, I don't know, engage in personal grooming. So I decided to do a podcast. I just saw and heard, I listened to a lot of podcasts. It was really all about market need. And I want a podcast like this. And the like this shouldn't, it shouldn't be so unusual. But if you look at the landscape of podcasts, they usually are three people, sometimes four. That's not the platonic ideal agreeing with each other. That's the dynamic. And it gets very annoying to me. So I'll be listening to the commentary podcast or the editor's roundtable national review, a couple of conservative podcasts that I take, can take, do like at times. And then sometimes I'll check in with, say, Pod Save America, same category. I could take them both at times. But there'll just be such obvious points where you want to say, you know, John Lovett, if you just got into dialogue with Charlie Cook, something good would happen. Everyone on Pod Save America just agreeing with a point. And there on the conservative podcast, them raising the obvious counterpoint, but it not occurring on the actual podcast I'm listening to. And the same thing happens in the other direction. So rather than perform triage in my mind or do a gist segment, where I take a scrap of one podcast and marry it to another, which I've done, and say, let's see who has the better argument, but I have to go and uh, call through three or four podcasts just to get all the arguments in the same place. I created my own podcast. And I did it with people I really like talking to and people who do challenge me and make me change my mind on things, or at least you know make me sharpen where I am. If I am generally like, well, I see both your points of view. It's not really that satisfying as a segment. So Sometimes I challenge myself to come down. I will not say, yes, Jamie won this round. But in my mind, I will say, these are much better arguments, say, that Virginia is making in this case. Mm. It's fun to witness. And there are mind, there is mind changing. You know, um, I think that, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Change My View on, uh, well, it was a started as a Reddit and I think it's an HBO thing, but there's like, there's a real <laughs> really, weird... this is Reddit's, Reddit's threads get optioned now for HBO. It was yeah, like it's got more three, than three shows, three seasons in a movie out of that Reddit deal. <laughs> and then there's subreddit spinoffs and there's 12 podcasts. No, yeah, it's actually Broadway. really kind of a cool thing. And it was started by this um, Scottish 19 year old whose friends couldn't agree about The Walking Dead. They just couldn't agree. And they couldn't agree about Scottish independence. But he decided that they were too dug in in their positions on Scottish independence and The Walking Dead. And that they needed to be more open to have their views changed. And so on Change My View, you submit a view to have it changed. Um, so you have to be ready to have a view overthrown, which is a weird position to be in. But I think that, you know, I think the three of us are at least have a crack of um, doubt about our own views or the absolute certainty of our own views. Maybe I just speak for myself because I'm so broad minded. Jamie, do you? There's only a handful of things that I would say I'm uh, unmovable. Uh, one of those is, is freedom of speech, uh, and I'm an absolutist on that in uh, pretty much all cases. But other than that, it's hard for I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would say you know NATO enlargement was a was a good thing. I've been arguing that a lot over the past couple of years and the past couple of months in relation to Ukraine. But you know, besides that. I'm very open-minded. I think the past couple of years, I would have to say, really since the arrival of Donald Trump, if you haven't been humbled as a writer or an intellectual, and you haven't been forced to maybe reconsider some of your assumptions or things that you've believed in, uh, then I don't think you're doing it right. And I think 
one of the reasons I've become so disillusioned with this business and why I'm excited to do this podcast is because so few people in our business seem to have reconsidered their positions or asked questions or wondered how they got it wrong or why they've gotten some things wrong. And they've, they've dug in even more deeply. Um, and I find that the writers and the thinkers and the podcasters whom, I'm, whom I enjoy, they come from all different parts of the political spectrum now. But what they have in common is that ability to maybe question some of their priors or to engage with people on, on uh, other sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. Jamie, though, I would say you do, you're not a free speech absolutist. If you were, that would be easy, but also not interesting. For instance, you're not into not. I, I want to say this right. For instance, you don't defend the right to make real kitty porn, right? You don't defend. Oh. Well, I don't consider don't, that's not free speech, though. That's okay. that, that's involving the harm of. I mean, there, there's there's a crime involved in that, right? Which so, is so something like Brandenburg mind. or or. Uh, fighting yeah. words doctrine. Yeah, so, sure. But just the very instances of those. Now, if there's something called the fighting words doctrine, there's yeah. how do we define it and at what extent? And was Trump engaged in the, on the ellipsis in that? Right. And now we're into the debate. So sure, I, I guess it's term, I guess it's a problem with the term absolutist. I I put myself on the most libertarian end of the spectrum in sort of where uh, where people find themselves situated in this debate, right? If there's, yeah. on one, if there's on one side, you have the kind of, you know, censorious left and right, uh, you know, campus activists who are trying to shut down speakers and also their apologists in the mainstream media and say, you know, uh, the, the, the deans of a religious Bible college who are shutting down, a, you know, a, a pro-LGBT group on campus. I group all those people maybe on one extreme, right? I'm on the other extreme. That's, that's where I would put myself. Virginia, so I have a question for you. So the way Jamie just answered this question, talking about how a lot of journalists now are not checking their biases, all that kind of line of inquiry, that's something that you hear from people in the center and people sort of libertarian types like like Jamie. So as a person on the left, you are the representative of the left on this podcast. Do you see things pretty much that way or do you have a different take? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I think I, I said this on the, uh, I've said this on the show, or at least said this to, to Jamie and Mike that I, um, yeah, uh, Trump's Trump's election, uh, and the pandemic in different ways, ca- uh, capsized my standing interpretations of existence and American existence. And it's been an immensely interesting time. And as Jamie says, humbling. Um, you know, I've made common cause with people I wouldn't have spent a minute with. I've, um, you know, read all kinds of things. I mean, you know, the number of people who've gotten uh, their JDs from Twitter.com. I don't know if I'm exactly that, but I've definitely read many threads on national security and um, and the law from and from people I wouldn't have listened to before. Um, and l- that's led me to books and a real like continuing ed. Like I'm in the freaking learning annex all the time. Um, and, uh, and that's been interesting. That's been interesting. Um, I know that, you know, Twitter has some, um, some opponents, uh, you know, here, but I, um, you know, I, am a big fan of it in its current incarnation and, uh, you know, get a lot out of following, uh, British MPs and Gary Kasparov and whoever else. Um, and some, sometimes can't even believe that the website is free. Um, you know, people that I'd, I would never have had a chance to engage in in conversation with on all sides of the spectrum. I meet there on Twitter. Um, 
it parenthetically, it amazes me that people who are like strongly in favor of free speech don't like a platform where like a Mormon mother of six gets to lay out her argument in favor of abortion or, you know, Gary Kasparov talks you through why Putin is a poker player and not a chess player. Um, this is good stuff. You know, this is a, like home for free speech. Um, and I don't want to don't want to cycle through Twitter, except that Twitter experienced this growth during um, during the uh, during the Trump administration. And it was definitely where I found kind of trailheads to new areas of inquiry. But I guess I'm curious, what do you think of your fellow journalists these days? Like, what is your relationship to the quote unquote media? Yeah, I mean, I the answer to that can only be like, you you know, that tees up the answer. They're not trustworthy. They're terrible. They're two both sides. Um, I think it's maybe time to notice that none of the major news outlets have made, they've made very, very few errors of fact worth correcting that for all the complaints about the media, I don't see people trying to force corrections. Um, and that's extraordinary. I don't even know that there have been a lot of corrections uh, forced on Fox News or even Newsmax. So we have some accurate reporting going on to discuss. I also don't think that they've neglected many stories. If you take the New York Times, come up with a single big story that you think they missed. Um, and, you know, if you can come up, if you can't come up with 10. Well, they miss they missed the election of Donald Trump. Well, what do you mean missed? I mean, they they noted it. And that if you were reading if you were reading the newspaper religiously like myself and many other people in our class, you would have you would have been under the assumption that this man had what was it, a 2% chance of winning? No. 5% chance no, of winning? No, I mean I mean they totally missed it. And then it's not just the times by the way, it was the entire mainstream media. They they missed that story. Um, I'll give you a more I mean, tangible one. The election of Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah, Glenn the, Youngkin. The election of the election of Glenn Youngkin happened for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was a backlash to parents who wanted more say in education, and part of that was on the transgender issue. And the New York Times covered this really horribly. They didn't assign someone to go into Loudoun County to find the truth of this flashpoint allegation of a girl or maybe boy in a skirt assaulting someone in a bathroom, which we were told was a myth and has never happened, but actually did happen. It's a little nuanced in that the boy or girl in a skirt was invited in by the person. And then I guess a, a, an instance of uh, acquaintance rape happened. But the New York Times was either incurious or incapable of covering that. And anyone who was wondering why Glenn Youngkin got elected was left to think, oh, this guy just demagogued issues unfairly. And there was a backlash among parents who go to Board of Education meetings and just don't know facts. It wasn't the truth. The Washington Post did send a reporter to the actual adjudication of that trial. You got better facts from the Post. But the, but the New York Times, I mean, this isn't as big as Yellow Cake and, uh, and, and the war and Saddam's um, procurement of weapons of mass destruction, but they obviously and totally whiffed on that. And I think they whiffed on that because of a couple issues, but one is that the transgender issue is absolutely a third rail. And another was a bit of incuriosity about why, well, I don't know, that goes to motivation. Just the facts of their coverage didn't really take Yunkin seriously. I think that as far as, you know, no one asking for corrections on Fox or the New York Times, it's almost like, what's the point? We're so siloed, which is one of the reasons why not even mad should exist. But my big complaint is even though New York Times has wonderful coverage on so many things, and I trust them 
uh, on Ukraine. And I read a lot of other sources and their Ukraine reporting about what's going on with weaponry and in the field and, you know, people in America trying to argue about how much should be funded. It's really great. And there are other issues like that. But they you look for media to properly put in context what threats are. And I think lately they have been really hitting hard the idea that we're on the brink of a civil war and they're blaming Republicans for that. And I liken it to threats from Islamic terrorism and that there are oath keepers and there are proud boys and they would like to do us harm. But are we really on the brink of a civil war or is this just sort of the New York Times, a little more highbrow, definitely more left wing version of the caravan? It's something for us to fear. There is some evidence there and they don't really report on it in a way that I trust or think is totally, I don't know if the word is factual, but trustworthy. Well, I mean, this thing that newspapers are responsible for prediction, I'm not even sure that's journalism. I mean, nobody predicted COVID. Um, and, you know, they did. They There was at 538 or whoever it was, was doing the prediction at that time did give Nate Cohn, did give a, um, you know, a, a chance. I think it yeah. Nate Silver, Nate Silver. But yeah. was that yet owned by The New York Times? I can't remember now that when that dial was flickering in you know, <laughs> October and November of 2016. But in any case, there was um, there was definitely always a chance he would win. There was plenty of coverage of Trumpites. The fact that they didn't say with 100 percent certainty in advance of the election that he was going to win doesn't mean they missed the story. Um, no, 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 that's not, right? no, no. It's not a question of prediction, Virginia. It's a question of giving me a sense of my own country so that I can understand why and how a man like this could win. And let's be honest, none of us, very few people in our class, by which I mean, you know, upper middle class coastal elites who read these newspapers and uh, are, are professionals and uh, tend to vote Democrat, or even some of us who occasionally vote Republican, we were so blindsided by this. We did not understand our own country. It was it was like a foreign it was like a foreign country to us. It was on inconceivable. The, on the contrary, I mean, I was with Mike on as we've said before on on election night, and uh, you know it, what was amazing was that the you know a, a, a strong majority of people wanted Hillary Clinton to be president. That was the the takeaway to me. Um, that you know under that we come in with the electoral well, college and we come in right. with a very very small. Uh, margin of victory in the Electoral College, which added up to me perfectly in the way it had been covered. We had plenty of interviews with Trumpites. We knew we talked to death about how angry white the white working class was for various reasons. Maybe I, mean, I think we had them polled and they said that the uh, mass deportation of Mexicans and Muslims was the first thing they wanted to accomplish either because they were racist or because they are in fear for their jobs. But both of those things were very much available to us. And I think understanding the middle of the country, which, by the way, became Gerald Boyd's chief preoccupation um, on election night. The first thing he said is we've got to just cover, cover, cover Trump voters. Um, and, you know, I think we missed a story that ev that actually the majority of Americans wanted Hillary Clinton to be president and the majority of Americans decisively want Joe Biden to be president. You wouldn't know it to read some of the corrective work that's, that argues we should have predicted Trump's victory, but no one could have predicted it or COVID or uh, or the Ukraine invasion up to, you know, six months before it. And speaking of Ukraine, I mean, I guess we can just back down from these particulars, but I think the particulars are pointing out how much some place, some like always, you know, we always complain about the New York Times. Everyone complains about the New York Times. It is astounding how much the New York Times gets right and how the New York Times uniquely keeps foreign bureaus open um, 
uh, you know, where other other papers and outlets have have fallen apart. Uh, so a self-assessment, which I performed, is that, you know, I did on the gist a segment called Trump Anxiety Hotline. And the point was people would call in super worried that Trump would win. And I would try to allay their anxiety with facts. Now, every time I did say, look, he has a 25 percent chance of winning or whatever it was at that point, yeah. a 30 percent chance of winning. I would also try to put into context what 30 percent chance means. And if you hate sports, it might not resonate. But, you know, a baseball team is up five to four in the eighth inning. You've been in that situation if you like baseball. Can the team that's trailing ever come back? They always come back. It just happens about 30% of the time. But still, I think what Jamie is saying does resonate. Like, I didn't think it was impossible. I portrayed that it was, there was a decent possibility. But the the gestalt, if you will, the gist of what I was saying is, come on, this is not going to happen. Trust the polls. And we, as that class of people, do believe, I mean, we do believe in things like polling. We, po- we we point to it as, well, that's just empiricism. When the idea that the polls are skewed becomes a widespread idea, I remember that I rebutted it. I argued with a pollster from Trafalgar. Come on, you guys are just Republican pollsters. All your polls are showing that the Republicans, this is before the 2020 midterms, well, I'm sorry, the uh, 2018 midterms, all your polls are showing the Republicans are doing better, but they were kind of right. And now it's become conventional wisdom on the polls that, yeah, if a poll says Democrats are up by two, it probably means they're really tied. And we learned that and absorb that. But as a member of the media, uh, putting forward this idea that any sort of uh, narrative about skewing of the polls was just based on bias, that was wrong. I'll cop to it. I was wrong about that. I just think it's interesting that we're like, we think that the time, say, as a proxy for everything else, minimized the chances of uh, Trump's winning and didn't pay attention to those trends. While now, it, you know, Mike is saying we're exaggerating or times is exaggerating um, the chances of some kind of civil war or civil conflict. Um, you know, this is something newspapers try to get right. Speaking of Ukraine, the Times' most no- notorious violation of all professional ethics is Walter Durante, uh, who downplayed the danger uh, to Ukrainians and then somehow it still has a Pulitzer Prize posthumously for it. Um, but, um, but I mean, I mean, I hope that listeners are noticing that we've mentioned, you know, this like particular case of did this trans boy do this thing or not that led to the election of Glenn Youngkin and a few other things when the like the answer to your question, Megan, that I like felt teed up to answer is, well, the media is just full of shit. Like, I I can't imagine. That's the answer I was looking for. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, <laughs> it's the subtitle of the podcast. Um, also, I'm glad you mentioned trans because we, we never we never talk about that on this on this show. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't. I For a don't, podcast called Unspeakable, you do a lot of speaking of that. Yes, we're gonna change it. we're gonna change it to transpeakable. Um, I uh, yeah, I don't know why we get caught in eddies like trans. I mean, it would seem we have bigger fish to fry. You don't. Oh, I I okay. don't actually. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I really don't. It seems like very. Um, well, it's easier it's, to get. Yeah. I mean, as hard as it is to get your mind around, it's easier to get your mind around than boring stuff like Ukraine or or stuff that's complicated. I mean, it's in your it's in your face. 
I, I want to get to the to trans thing in a second. I want to get to the okay. sort of more cult, culture war things in a second. But I want to get back just, I don't want to dwell on the New York Times, but I'm remembering, was it the day after the election in 2016 or a couple days, there was the story about the women on Staten Island, I think, who had voted for Trump and just yeah. the absolute incredulousness of the of the reporting. I mean, this these were not people in red states. That It was all of a sudden, it was like, oh my God. God, like women voted for Trump, women in New York, you know, people who are have some semblance of sophistication. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, it was it was pretty remarkable that that's right in the backyard of The New York Times. And it was completely missed. Well, I can't believe they voted for Trump. When I say can't believe, I don't mean that I don't think it was a thing that happened or their own motivations wouldn't take him there. It's just I find I do find it uh, baffling that they w- so many people would not recognize the huckster for being a huckster and not acting within their interests. And yes, I understand he, well, there was a Hillary Black backlash and he channeled, uh, he channeled frustration. But if you want to say, you know, do you believe it? Yeah, of course it happens. You know, of course it will happen, but I find it flummoxing and it's, but then again, maybe it just comes down to it. That's why it's something to examine, not something to say can't happen. Mm-hmm. I want to actually, before we go on, um, Mike, I think most listeners know who you are and you can um, give maybe a a little spiel about yourself. But Virginia and Jamie, can you just give us a thumbnail sketch about your backgrounds as as journalists? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I started uh, my professional journalism career at the New Republic magazine in 2006. And I was there for about three and a half years covering domestic politics, American foreign policy. Uh, my biggest story from that time was uh, I, I broke the Ron Paul newsletters scandal, if you recall that. He, the presidential candidate and former congressman from Texas, I found these old, crazy, uh, racist, conspiratorial, nonsensical. Oh, yeah. What year was that? Uh, it was 2008. It was during his um, oh, presidential yeah. campaign. Um, I did that. And then I spent, and then I moved overseas to work for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, which is based in Prague, and I uh, traveled around the former Soviet space um, covering politics and events in a very vast part of the world, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, And then I spent about a year and a half after that in in Germany as a a correspondent. And for the past 10 years, I've been based in Washington. Um, I published my first book, uh, The End of Europe, in 2017. Uh, which was sort of a summation of my of my time reporting in and from Europe, and uh, I'm sad to say it was quite a prescient book. It was about everything from sort of uh, a- aggressive Russian foreign policy to Brexit to rising anti-Semitism and populism and authoritarianism, the whole sort of witch's brew. Um, and then I published my second book uh, this past summer called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which is a, a, a not a revisionist history, but I say a parallel history of our nation's capital um, from FDR to Bill Clinton. It was an instant Clinton. bestseller. I it was an instant New York Times bestseller. What does yes. that mean? Like, uh, it means that it made the bestseller list the, the week that it came out. How did, That's amazing. Uh, Pre-sales, I guess. Thank you. Yes. And I, 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 you'd be shocked uh, how many books you have to sell to make that list. It's uh, uh, not as many as you would think. I'll just leave it at oh. that. Would the shock take a while <laughs> to accumulate or would it be instant? I'm just trying to be humble. I'm just trying to be humble. I, just, I, I didn't sell nearly as many books as I thought to make, to make the list. You don't have to sell as many books as you might think. All right. That's good to know. 
Yeah. It's good there's, there's hope so for, there's hope for everybody. Not, if you're not on the New York Times bestseller list, you've like, you've, you're really, <laughs> yes, that's how, like that's what I'm hearing. That's how I'm interpreting. I mean it that way. I was trying to, I was just trying to, you know, yeah. be humble. Yeah, it's it an, shows, awesome, it just, an awesome <laughs> book. It's let's just land with, it's a great oh, book. Thank you. And thank people, you. In, that, in that case, popular taste was right on. And I know yeah. you've written many books, Megan, but if you haven't been a bestseller, uh, it's just because you don't, tr- you don't have any, you don't go in for this instantaneousness. You like slow oatmeal. Yes. You like the slow No, that's right. Movement. I'm a slow. Totally yes. slow. I don't know. Totally I might've been yeah, a bestseller. I don't look, you know what? I have not looked at the Amazon page for the last three books that I have published. I just Good haven't gone you. on it. It's like a hot stove because wow. what, you can't. That is there's an anti-Bezos you, stance. There's nothing you can admiring. do about it. Why would you go? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know what it is? It's people, they publish a book and then they they check the Amazon rank every hour. It's like weighing yourself every hour. It's going to change little things. You can't, and there's not much you can do about it. It's just, that's my biggest piece of advice for authors that nobody will ever take is don't look at the Amazon page. But it's true. Yeah. Although if you get a, a zero star, one star uh, campaign against you, as I have, oh. it's, um, oh. you can actually, there is redress for that. Um you know, people who haven't read it, they're not verified buyers. They just put pictures of dumpster fires. So <laughs> see, this is I wouldn't know because I haven't looked. Okay, so has right. this happened to you? Virginia, give us your uh, your bio. Um, okay, so I uh I, I'll try to get up to the dumpster. Um I <laughs> graduated from UVA in nineteen ninety one. I went straight to Harvard for graduate school, kind of like gave up on Warlocky graduate school after the master's part, thinking I'd get it. Hey, what were you studying? You were going to be English. an academic? English, English, going to be an academic. Um, I moved to New York City for a year and I was working at a bookstore when Rob Boynton, who now teaches at NYU, came in, saw me reading a book by Janet Malcolm and said I should apply for a job that he had just learned about. Oh, see, that, that is so 90s. Can I just right? say, that's the kind of thing that, Jamie, does this just make your, like, you roll your eyes? This is the kind of thing that young people hear, the kind oh, of no. story they hear, and they're just like, oh, wait, why don't you get to the part about your rent control department? No, it's romantic. Yeah, no, exactly. It's romantic. I, rent. I was so also- somebody sees I, you reading a book and then they offer you a job. He said he said he thought I should go like bike up and apply to, like at the New Yorker for this job. Or actually, I think I got in touch with um, I was supposed to get in touch with David Kirkpatrick, who uh, who now is a foreign correspondent, of the New York Times, but was then a fact checker. And I actually wrote him a letter that was like, dear Mr. Kirkpatrick, I humbly submit my resume for your consideration. You'll see that I like, you know, have worked at a bookstore. I went in <laughs> and of course he was a little younger than I was. Right. It was a little oh. bit. Yeah. But I came in as like girl reporter with like a sheaf of, you know, whatever college recommendations. I don't know. In a girl reporter outfit. But I did get that job. I spent a year working um, as a fact checker. And at the end, realized that I was neither. I don't know. Fish nor fowl is right here. But it's all I can come up with in not ha- in having started toward a dissertation, but not finished it. I was going to be under a cloud of undone dissertation for my life if I didn't go finish it. So I went back and finished it. By the time I came back to New York, I got a job at Slate as a television critic because they, I was, I, well, a few other things. I was writing for MTV. I mean, this is, Megan, you were around in this time and I'm sure oh, yeah. you remember Golden how you age. had to piece things together. But yes, I was writing like patter for MTV hosts and VJs or whatever. And then, uh, <laughs> wow. You mean they didn't do that on They can't even ad lib, those guys? <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Is, what, would be, what would be a Mark okay. Goodman line versus exactly. uh, Kurt Loader? Uh, yeah. Right. What would be I, one thing okay. they'd say? Martha Quinn. Uh, 
Right. I had I wrote for um, Mark McGrath, who uh, do you remember his? Is he had a different name anyway? He was yeah, he, he like was hosted with, uh, he had the, yeah, he had frosted tips. Cool guy. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here it was one of the, but then I did a lot of um, behind the musics and then 100 shortest rock and roll marriages and stuff like that. Uh And one of them was rock and roll scandals. And this was my favorite one that I did. Ready? When people discovered what Chuck Berry had been watching women do, they couldn't believe what they were peeing. I mean, seeing. You wrote that? I wrote That's that. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It got by censors. See, free uh, speech absolutism uh, going on on MTV. Good stuff. <laughs> so, okay. So I left MTV then and they ha- and Jake Weisberg hired me at Slate to write about television. From there, the New York Times hired me. Um, then I got divorced and needed money. So I took a buyout at the Times and took a huge... Remember briefly, people were going to like Bloomberg and Yahoo News for crazy salaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. That uh, another time gone by, less quaint but more lucrative. Um, so I went to Yahoo for a couple of years, and then quit to write a book once once I had like paid off my debts, um, and then ran up some more consumer debt. That's my financial planning. <laughs> yeah, quitting to write a book really is not. Yeah. Uh, well, great I thought that book. I had savings by which, uh, you know, it was like almost five figures. Um, and so that took me, you know, whatever. Anyway, I started to pace, put, you know, put things together while I was working on the book for a next act. Um, and that I had been writing about politics at the, at Yahoo. There's like all little bits and pieces. I can't remember here brief columns here and there, uh, Politico. And then um, I went to the LA Times to write about opinion. And when um, Donald Trump was elected, they hired me full time around the time that Jacob Weisberg asked me to come on as a co-host for his um, eerily prescient podcast about uh, about Donald Trump. Trumpcast did not miss the fact that Donald Trump could win. It started in 2015. Um, so it did nothing but sound the alarm and interview people who's, you know, who were voting for Trump or whose parents were voting for Trump. And so it's another example of the mainstream media not missing the story. I stayed there for a while. I stayed there for many years. Um, and then when that ended, uh, I had committed to shifting to another kind of podcast. I did a culture podcast for a year called This is Critical. And when I couldn't get that off the ground, because it turns out you need the name Trump in your title to guarantee an instant bestseller, um, I uh, not a, not a sideways glance to critical theory that that that's it, not oh, as sexy as Trump. It, oh yeah, that, somehow that's right. Somehow <laughs> critical theory didn't do it. Um, but not I even tried. head on acknowledging it was it. It's like you have to work the pun to figure it out. Oh my god, <laughs> you're so right. I should have done more trans, and there's all kinds of regrets. But I um, but then Mike got in touch because we had known each other at Slate. And uh, Mike was canceled around the time I was canceled. So I was canceled by the right. Yeah, why were you canceled? Mike's come on this show and talked about his cancellation, but... W- well, when what I say it was canceled, I'm not making a grand no, statement. No, yeah, I had no, a show no. at Slate, Slate canceled Everybody, it. Oh, bra- you, you know, here's, people also want to be canceled now. Have you noticed this? They're like, I was totally canceled. I can tell a story about this. I A couple, a couple weeks before my book came out, I was meeting with an older gay author. And I was asking him for advice. Wait, are you gay? Are you gay? Uh, only on the weekends. Here? Only on the weekends. Are you, are you <laughs> and, um, on? We're recording on a Sunday. So I you're going to come out right here. I was asking him. I was asking him for advice on how to market the book. 
And we were eating in a restaurant and he sort of leaned in and looked over both shoulders and he said, try to get your book banned. Mm. <laughs> Good <Yeah>. idea. <laughs> Good idea. Um, but, but you had no success. Everyone's all about saying that you were an instant, you were an instant. <laughs> the, 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 Washington, the Washington Post review tried its no, best. No. <laughs> so wait, Virginia, how were you canceled? Okay. So at, at Yahoo, I had been canceled for saying that I was a creationist. Oops. That turns out not to go over well with people who are worried about Texans learning, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I got invited. To, I got a lifetime membership to the creationism museum in texas but someone does this mean you don't believe in evolution is that what you were saying you can read it it's it was kind of a joke but talk about the 90s being (laughs) over it wasn't like it just landed you know whatever didn't it like the creationist museum invites you do they give you an all-time membership for the rest of for as long as times existed you're on the eternity (laughs) plan all the way to revelation all the way to revelation all the way Right, all the way back to the founding of America. <laughs> yep. Um, I, um, yeah, that was like, ugh, you know how things stopped? You weren't really, couldn't really be funny anymore. I sort of yeah. missed the memo at that oh, particular period. What year was this? Ugh, this is important. I think it was 2013. It was yeah. just teetering. Like, yep. you know how- It could have like, gone either way. Right. It really could have, right? It could have gone either way. Exactly. But somehow it didn't. So all the scientists and the science writers, my least favorite people, they have degrees in science writing, came in to tell me that I was hashtag worse than ISIS. That's my favorite. Wow. Worse than ISIS. Um, <laughs> but then but then it was it was they're, it they're was creationists. All, it, they, yeah. it was also yeah. bad that the, when the creationists came and said Jesus was hated too. So that didn't help. Um, and, um, and I basically just had to back off Yahoo, but the one that happened kind of in concert with Mike is, um, more common for me. I offended, um, Tucker Carlson and Russia today RT by, um, also somewhat jokingly saying, I didn't know what to do with the Trumpites next door when they extended me kindness. Um, because, you know, it's one thing to respond to your political opponents when they're cruel to you, but what do you do when they're kind? Um, but that also didn't land very okay, well. Okay, so you because, were canceled. So, But know. doesn't that cancel out the cancellation? Because you're canceled by the left and then you're canceled by the right. So Not, not, her, you not her bank account, it doesn't. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I mean, the first time, the first time when I said I went left Yahoo to write a book, I actually left Yahoo because my, can- my contract wasn't re-upped after that cancellation. And now... And we're going to tell you about cancel court are our part of the show. But I think cancellation is you're only canceled if you go to income zero and job retraining. That's the key part. So I did go okay. into marketing for a year when I was completely persona non grata, creationist non grata. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's been rocky roads for all of us, um, except Jamie, who's had an enchanted life. Um, he's smart. And, uh, no, Jamie, yeah, because, you should, because he's not a dumb allu- Gen Xer. <laughs> well, you should you should detail because I tell people this. It's not an accident. You should detail that one bold step you took to ensure that you've not been canceled. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't. I I don't really engage on Twitter much anymore, and I gave my Twitter password to my partner. So basically, anything I ever oh, want, like anything for an I anniversary ever- gift. <laughs> It's the password anniversary. It was more of a gift for me because I found myself spending way too much time on there. And it also just sort of distorts your perception of reality, I find. And I think that's if I have to go back and 
bash the media again. I think it's journalists spend way too much time on Twitter. Uh, and they basically spend their time on there trying to please each other and uh, gain support from each other. And it's just a, it has a very distortive effect um, on our on our on our as a society on our perceptions of reality, because it's that's not mostly, at all what I use it for. But I'm not saying you do, but I think a lot of people do. And I will. And I think I would often fall into that trap. So any tweets you see go through a very, you know, long process of, of review and oh, uh, editing and yes and it, and, yeah. it, and it and it and it and it prevents me from uh wasting my time and also i think getting into scrapes that 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 might lead to dangerous consequences but that's interesting because doesn't it seem sometimes like you really have to tweet in order to like keep your relevance and keep your audience i've been accused of like people have told me that i would be more successful if i got in twitter fights um so it's hard to know how to. It's hard to know, and I just figured uh, whenever I write something, I'll tweet it out, uh, and occasionally, if I have some brilliant insight that can't wait, then I will submit it for review. But uh, I guess I'm just uh, trying trying to achieve a different type of success, perhaps than, than I, that. I've analyzed this a little bit. I think that from my experience and people I know, if you have a format, a forum, a forum that is almost always an old school pre-Twitter forum. And that gives you income and that gives you status. And it doesn't have to be an enormous amount of either. But I'm talking to friends of mine with a radio show that plays over the airwaves. They could just not tweet and they'll be fine. Or the columnist for a magazine that is not every six months looking to see how much engagement they got with the latest crazy article they wrote. If you are employed as a columnist or have existing contracts to say, write a book or have written a book, you can get away with just not going on Twitter at all. And maybe you'd be better off doing so. And I think a lot of the people who say, uh, you know, I need Twitter for my survival as a journalist in there, in some cases, it may be true, but it kind of depends on the kind of journalist you want to be or are trying to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, writing and talking is danger. It is. I, I, I it's, I don't know. I do a lot of things that aren't good for me. And one of them is probably writing op-ed columns. And another one is probably going on Twitter. But I, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't see the Twitter, I guess, that you all see. I, I mean, it feels like a fun and certainly I, the other social media, I, I make no sense to me. I've never been happier the day I quit Facebook. I have no time for any of the others. I don't make Pinterest boards. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I, I do a little be real, I have to admit, but, um, <laughs> but, but I never, I've never had an opportunity to, um, talk more broadly to, you know, uh, social justice activists in South Africa, or as I say, this Mormon mother of six who now has a book out on abortion. She describes herself that way. Um, that is incredibly trenchant and, um, and a broad range of other people. I mean, to think of it as a media, uh, echo chamber, it's so much less a New York media echo chamber than my nineties life was. Um, I feel like I finally, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me, for instance, why uh, why uh, Trump won in 2016 and still has a following now, largely because I read a lot of tweets by by Trumpites and Trump supporters. Hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about your podcast itself. You just teased us with something called Cancel Court. Do you want to start oh, yeah. there? What is that? Well, Cancel Court is where the three justices, Justice Kerchick, Heffernan and Pesca, 
do make rulings about people in the news who are said to have been or possibly have been canceled. It is a two-pronged test. One is, were they canceled, actually canceled? And two is, is it a deserved cancellation? And I have to say, since we've been doing it, the outcome is not always preordained. Sure, there are some originalists among us and others who think the cancellation is a living, breathing constitution, but we really do <laughs> hash it out. And we have, I think, pretty in-depth, uh, nuanced, I know, I, got, I have a mug that I sip out of celebrating nuance. Mm. We have nuanced discussions about this. And, you know, I was just having uh, a kind of discussion debate with my friend Adam Davidson, who essentially, he did tweet out once that he, he kind of doesn't think cancellation really exists, even though he was uh, a really good friend to me during my travail. So he thinks something maybe a little... Wow, he erased uh, you. Well, he did erase that tr that tweet. You know, he took it down for a couple of reasons. But there is uh, a sentiment out there that, oh, all this stuff is cancellation. It's not cancellation. It's you ready. They figured out the magic phrase, the in, in, can, wait, hold on. What do you say? Uh, the invocation that will take away all the controversy about cancellation. It's consequences. Another syllable. Therefore, we have no debate about it. So we don't, we don't. We don't do anything that engages in that kind of sophistry. We know that there's a thing called cancel is it cancellation. The majority of us have been through it, and you know we weigh in on it. And I think it's a it's a time for listeners who might not always a hundred percent say everyone who always says they were canceled was, and there's no such thing as cancellation. Those kind of people might not like our show and might not like cancel court. But for everyone else, it's sort of the best. A uh, little bit of a cliched good faith contemplation of sometimes there is cancellation. Mm -hmm. So what's the criteria for being canceled? Well, I'm the originalist. Well, <laughs> I, I, for me, it's it, it's me when I went into marketing and Stephen Glass when he went to when he went to law school. There has to be job retraining. Oh, I thought you were going to say Los Angeles. Yes. OK. Whenever <laughs> anybody goes to Los Angeles, it's <laughs> there, there, the, something's going on. They uh, the yeah, there has to be job retraining and income zero. Like someone who just, you know, is gets kicked off Twitter and has a happy life on Gab or Parler. Nah, that's not canceled. But yeah, well, to me, it's not so severe if you were a professor and then you're not. And it's sort of unfair. Maybe you still have some way of making some money, but that could be a cancellation. If you have a documentary and you named it the wrong thing or the wrong people protested it, and that documentary can't get uh, distributed, I would mm -hmm. consider that cancellation. So to me, it doesn't have to be so absolute. But then there is the question of, well, was it warranted? And that's often a good question. Okay. So what other segments do you have on, on your show? How is it structured? How do you prepare? Do you actually prepare? Do you do anything or you just totally wing it? <laughs> no, well, what what would be more impressive? Which answer? Yeah, of course we prepare. <laughs> and we bat and we bat podcast. around. Yes. Not we bat around topics and it's three topics a week. And then there is one of the topics might be a cancel court if there's a good cancel one out there. Sometimes we don't issue a writ of certiorari if there is no no reasonable basis to even debate a cancellation. And then at the end, I notice a lot of these shows have, you know, your happy moment, your moment of Zen, the Daily Show used to do. The um, the NPR podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour, always has what's making us happy. We went the other direction. What's just pissing us off? So this is the things that 
grind our gears or get our goat. And these are our goat grinders. And those may be more winged. Somehow among the three of us, we are just able to surface annoying things at a moment's notice. I don't know what that says about us, but it does seem to be an ability that we all have. (laughs) Yes, I've noticed, Jamie, that sometimes you and I will say, like, give me a minute. Okay, I got one. <laughs> I'm yeah, maybe because I'm younger, I'm less crotchety. I don't know, but I, I, you I'm, are. I'm, oh, I'm come on! Not. You're the most crotchety of us by far. I, I guess you the have... things, the things that bother me are more uh, existential than they're 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 uh. too profound. They're too profound to be summed up in just a tiny little pithy, uh. a little pithy uh, segment at the end of an episode. Right, like like a couple of weeks ago when you were like, I can't believe they're asking me to join the AARP. I'm 38. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, they let in anybody. Essential. Yeah, Apparently exactly. now, remember, did you know this, Megan, that membership in the AARP is open to anybody? Is nothing sacred anymore. Because you just have to identify as an old person. There you go. It's, it all goes back to the trans Self-ID. stuff, right? There you go. Self-ID. <laughs> well, you were quoted in a Pamela Paul uh, column, uh, we will say recently, um, about the word queer Mm. and the way it's been uh, applied more and more broadly. Um, You did write, you are a, I I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're, you're a, a gay Republican, it sounds I'm like. Not, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Republican. I, you, could say, you could say right of center. Okay, you're, a conser- you're the conservative. Sure. Okay, sure. nobody's a, okay, whoa, sorry. Not, not a Republican. No. Okay. I get it, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Are you, okay, but you're a Democrat, Virginia, is that right? Uh, Would yes, you say so? Democrat, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I vote, Mike, are I you like Democrat. an independent? No, I mean, I don't think I'm an independent, knowing what both parties are like and who they'd elect uh, Speaker of the House if elected. I basically subscribe to almost all the policy prescriptions of Barack Obama. So you're not a Democrat. Okay. I am a Democrat. I'm not an independent. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, see, I think of myself as more of a journalist where I'd never say, you know, I am a Democrat. I'm just saying... Uh, realistically, for the next few years, I don't see myself voting Republican in anything other than a local race, and I'm not going to be voting okay, Republican. Okay, but you're not an independent. Okay, race. right. I'm just saying. Okay, to be to be fair, and now I know I'm interrupting you, Megan. I'm sorry, but um, but we also um, you know, we overlap on some things and we disagree on others, and we did when we brought J- when we brought our third into our thruple. Jamie, we, um, we, oh, you are queer then we did sound <laughs> exactly. We did sound him out on, um, on Donald Trump because there, it's not really, a, I mean, we want a lot of views, but there are certain views are, that are more or less inadmissible and anti-democratic views and, you know, qua, you know, pro civil war views or edging up to fascist. I know no one likes that word, but for whatever reason, we decided to take that off the table. So we don't have a Jeffrey Lord, as Mike says, at the table, just making noise about, you know, positions that are basically gibberish for anyone who wants to live in a functioning democracy. Okay. Okay. But Jamie, what are you very engaged in these culture war issues, especially around the gender stuff? Or did you just happen to be quoted in this column? And I know you you wrote a book about the sort of legacy of gay Washington, but that's a whole different. Yeah. I haven't really weighed in a whole lot on the transgender issue. But when it comes to, you know, gay politics and gay people in America, it's becoming increasingly hard to avoid. Um, and I think what Pamela's column tried to get at was the way in which this term queer has perhaps um, that there are maybe contradictions in it. And it's maybe too encompassing or too expansive a term to 
to apply to uh, a group of a group of people. And, you know, my objections to it, I would say, are twofold. One, um, I think it's, well, it, it is a slur. I mean, that's how it originated, certainly. The word queer was often the last word that a, that a gay man would hear before having his head bashed in. And uh, I, you know, it was certainly tr- traumatic for me growing up. And I'm not at the stage yet where, where I can embrace it as a positive descriptor. I also think it has political connotations. I mean, as you said, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm center right. And I don't really know anyone center right uh, who embraces the term queer to describe themselves. It, I mean, let's be honest, it, it, it connotes, you know, radical left-wing politics. It's a, it's a subversive term. I mean, that's really what the word means. It means weird, strange, marginal. Um, it's all about kind of opposing bourgeois values and bourgeois society. So I have no opposition to people who want to call themselves queer. Uh, I'm a total pluralist. You can call yourself whatever you want. But as a, as a term to describe all people who are not heterosexual or cisgender, which is basically what the term has become. And by the way, you know, straight people who like, you know, have blue hair and maybe kissed a member of the same sex when they were in college. Um, I have problems with that, you know? And and, uh, so, yeah, that's my, that's my opposition to the term. Or queering the canon, you know, anything that is odd in a movie. That's right. Yeah. Right. Well, Virginia, you were an academic and queer is something that has come down from uh, academia and, infiltrated mainstream discourse. Do you have any thoughts on, on this as somebody who, you know, maybe maybe you were throwing that term around in the 90s when you were in grad it, school? It's stre- throw, throwing the term around. I was, um, it's an extremely useful word and, you know, as a cert, as a way to look at literature or even the canon, as Mike says. But, um, but you know, I don't, I'm not like, I can't police nomenclature at the New York Times or wherever else. And, you know, people should define themselves as they want. If if center right uh, gay men don't like to be known as queer, I'm sure there's a carve out. Um, you know, if, uh, if I mean, I don't know, LGBTQIAX plus seemed to like it was corrected when I used it recently for queer uh, in a publication. And uh, and, you know, I just noticed the changing tide. I mean, same with capitalizing black and lowercasing black. It doesn't seem like a really interesting opportunity to um find divisions among us but um you know if someone feels erased by the word queer then maybe another word needs to go side by side with it um i this is why i disagree with jk rowling just because we have to bring trans in it, it it just i don't think her trauma around how many penises are in are in the room or t- like with all respect jamie but you know your bad memories of what queer means like that they those are absolutely true impulses but i don't think they should dictate policy okay what do you mean by that i just mean (laughs) this is getting good now right exactly well just i mean you know jk rowling said that she was she was raped so she doesn't like she likes to know how many penises are in the room so that's a very reductive way of of, of parodying of parodying her her view that people that people with penises maybe shouldn't be allowed into rape shelters or allowed to compete on sports teams with women i think i also i also also think that trans i also think that trans women might take objection to your description of them as as people with penises it's usually it's usually people it's usually people with uteruses that we <laughs> that, that, not, that that's that's the term that 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 we've. Uh, I, I'm only I'm only paraphrasing J.K. Rowling herself mm. that, that, that there's a need to know how many penises in there are in the room because penises represent the prospect of rape. 
And, um, and, and I, you know, like we've all suffered lots of traumas in our lives and we need to to manage the triggers for them. Right. I mean, it sucks, but, um, those are, that's part of our, you know, our personal obligations as opposed to our public life, which is to make things humane. And clearly queer is an effort to, you know, keep a, make a more concise way to refer to people who are, as you say, not heterosexual and maybe not cisgendered and, and, and maybe it lands and maybe it doesn't. Um, if it was, if if uh, if it was, if it was any other word that they came up with to encompass this entire community of people then I'd, I'd be fine with it. And then it would just be a semantic or linguistic debate. They've decided to use a word which has clear political connotations. There, there, there's an agenda behind this word queer. You want to talk about politics and and policy? Uh, the people who prefer the word queer, you know, they're not content with with gay marriage and gays in the military or equality. They're not, which is which is what the gay rights movement was always about about protecting gay people from discrimination and making us equal citizens. And this is where I think there's a difference between the transgender movement or certain aspects of the transgender movement, which is trying to get people to adopt an entirely different conception of reality. Right, that men can be women and women can be men. The gay rights movement never had those claims on reality. It was just these are gay people. We're two to five percent of the population. We've existed since time immemorial in every society and every strata of society. Uh, you 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 can't change us. It's not harmful. It's a neutral trait, like you know, red hair or left-handedness, and treat us equally. That's it. And that's. I think most America, the vast majority of Americans have come to terms with that. There are aspects of the transgender movement that are not content, I think, with just anti-discrimination. It's about adopting an entire worldview. That's what gender ideology is. It's about forcing people to accept an entire worldview that is at odds with reality. And I think that's why you're seeing such a pushback to this agenda, not from crazy right-wing radicals who, who I don't agree with, who I do think actually want to harm people. Uh, that's why you see this reaction from feminists and from people like J.K. Rowling, who's a lifelong labor voter. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I st- this is exactly. I just, I don't, I don't understand what it is to have an ideology forced on you. I mean, I, I haven't had one being made to being made to agree, or being being told that you have to agree with certain aspects of the transgender agenda. What is it is, to be told? You have to agree with anything. When does that happen? You mean as a child? I mean, putting I, pronouns, putting pronouns in your in your email signature, or or being forced to do that in certain workplace environments. I think I see that as a as a as political indoctrination. That's really, what I think just, that's about. I mean, I don't know anyone who's been forced, and if there are offices no, that force well, you to do that, <laughs> but but I don't have friends uh, whose kids are like. You know, there's a there's a gender there's gender education going on in in their schools. School. Yeah, yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, I think all, both of both Virginia mine kids do, and uh, they are they don't feel forced. It's the new way of doing it. I actually to make one more point here as a gay man, why this disturbs me is because a lot of these kids who are gender nonconforming would otherwise grow up to be gay, right? An effeminate boy who plays with dolls and wears a dress, or a, or a tomboy. And increasingly, and by the way, this is a great achievement of gay people and the gay movement was expanding our understandings and acceptance of gender variants. Uh, that was that I, I really applaud the gay people who came before me, who made it so that uh, a fabulous femme gay guy is not going to get you know beat up or fired from his job um, in the way that he might have been 
40, 50, or even even sooner in, in the recent past. A lot of these kids now, I think, are being pressured or led in certain directions to believe that they're that they're actually transgender as opposed to just being gay. So I don't I don't I don't see examples of that, but I but I there hear are multiple a lot of people are worried there are many about examples that. of it. No, there are plenty of examples. There are, well, there are, there are there are people who have gone through a gender transition only to come out and regret it and say I was gay all along. And Megan has inter- has interviewed some of them on her on her podcast, right, Megan? Yeah, and I I have friends even whose kids are gender nonconforming, and the schools have taken taken the liberty of really encouraging them to think hard about their gender identity rather than just letting them be themselves. Anyway, my 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 thoughts are are on this are well known. I do want to say actually that Virginia, I when it comes to J.K. Rowling. I agree that some of her language has been needlessly alarmist around this. That the idea that um, that women are in peril because of transgender people in the bathroom and in women's only spaces, I don't think there's nothing there. But I think that some of these um, gender critical feminists have they're, they're they're playing that card needlessly. Like there, there's so much to say about this that I think is rational and respectful. And J.K. Rowling, by the way, has never. She says I support trans people; they should have the same rights as everybody else. She's been clear about that. But I actually, the, the I think we we do actually agree a little bit on this, and that I wish she would turn down the she would turn down the heat uh, when it comes to the the victim narrative. N- not that I'm diminishing her experience, but I just don't think it's necessary. I, it, it feels like it's sort of a side point that's been centered in a way that's not productive. Um, anyway. By the way, I want to I want to um, extend a, a, a generous embrace or maybe an effort to confound the binary. And I have something I think we can all agree on about bathrooms that just occurred to me. We it's not that we should pee with men or with women or with trans people. We should pee uh-huh. alone. We should pee alone. Oh, my there God. Should yes. Be- Right. Like I went into a seemingly public bathroom, but it was just a bunch of really well-built stalls that kept you in silence, nice silence and privacy while you peed. And I didn't care who was next to me because there was like a hard cement wall next to me. I mean, well, I have to say, Virginia, I agree with you. Robert Putnam, author of Peeing Alone, agrees with you. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think, however, you we, we failed to get inaugural Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member chuck berry to agree with you so when it, <laughs> when, yes when it comes yes. to the coprophiliacs among us who i don't know if they're part of the uh broad queer movement i i would think not and i might be saying it wrong we might not get total buy-in but i think on that note we could at least have enough of a consensus that we could go out saying that we agree but we're not even that yeah. So and, that's exactly and, it. Yeah. And Virginia, I mean, really, I, I feel unsafe because you said nomenclature. And oh. I think I've been pronouncing that word wrong I, my yeah, whole I, life. I've been saying nomenclature. I did. I say it. I'm, I said probably nomenclature. Said it no, it's fantastic. I just make it up as I go along. <laughs> I don't, I have no, I, in fact, I, on, on a uh, Trumpcast, I said many, many times pro publica, thinking that that was like a Latin way that Latin people say it. I think actually I people were saying that in the beginning. Latin yeah. oh, really? people okay. say it. People, <laughs> Latin ex people used Latinx to people. study Latin. Yeah, they ex yeah. studies of Latin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, right, well, publica. Not- it turns out yeah. to be publica. What a bummer. Yeah. Um, all right. Not even mad is the podcast. Where can people find you? What day do you drop? All that kind of stuff. 
we record on Tuesdays and drop Wednesdays, except when there is an election day. And the answer is, as always, the answer with every podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know why we have to say that sentence. It's like they because it's so confusing because it's like, is it is it on Patreon? They're like, where is it? I don't understand. Is it free? Is it not free? Et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. it's like things like Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Overcast, Spotify, all the places. <laughs> um, it's a fine booksellers or major major motion right. picture of our <laughs> right or in your grocer's <laughs> freezer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, all right. Is there anything else you'd like us to know about it? Before we I think you got it, up? Megan. You got it better than anyone. All right. I'm I'm so honored to have you here. This is the biggest crowd I've hosted. Um, you did an amazing job. Well, you guys are great guests. You're very um, welcoming and inclusive. Thank yes, you. that's right. Yes. Congratulations on the podcast. Everybody should listen. Um, and everybody should use you as, as role models. You're, uh, you're paving the way for the new civility. <laughs> I, uh, well, we like to hear that. That's what we tell ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As you choose to believe. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Thanks, Megan. That was my interview with Mike Pesca, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamie Kerchick. They are the co-hosts of the new podcast, Not Even Mad. Mike Pesca is the host of the podcast, The Gist, as well. That's the longest-running daily news podcast uh, ever, I think. He's previously worked for Slate, NPR, lots of places. He's been a guest on The Unspeakable before, so you can go back and check that out if you missed it the first time. Virginia Heffernan is a columnist for Wired. She has had a large online following uh, for a long time. She's an experienced podcast host. She's hosted The Trump Cast as well as This Is Critical. And finally, Jamie Kerchick is the New York Times bestselling author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, and a columnist for Tablet Magazine. And again, their new podcast is Not Even Mad. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. Again, the next listener Zoom hangout is coming up this Sunday, November 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is for subscribers to the Substack at the founding member level. I know that's uh, a little bit of a a little bit of a high ticket item, but really not so bad considering what you get. It's a very cool thing. You can um, hang out with me once a month. We talk about recent episodes of the podcast, and it's a really good group. So if you want to join us, go to megandaum.substack.com and check everything out. I've also been doing more writing there, posting new essays never before read essays and those are generally available to paying subscribers only so please consider supporting the page if you haven't already i'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest thanks for listening see you next time